When it comes to listing your home for sale, everyone and their mom has advice. Oh, honey, who's going to want to buy this place on a cul-de-sac? It's literally a dead end. But for professional advice, a REMAX agent actually knows best. Let's start with a neighborhood analysis. I've been seeing lots of buyers looking to move here. REMAX is the most trusted name in real estate. Visit REMAX.com or download the REMAX app to find the right agent. The right agent can lead the way. Based on 2022 BrandSpark American Trust Study. Each office independently owned and operated. Hey, this is DeRay. And welcome to Pod Save the People. In this episode, it's me, Kaya, Miles, and DR talking about the news that you don't know. And then I sit down with Malcolm Bell to discuss his book, The Attica Turkey Shoot, Carnage, Cover-Up, and the Pursuit of Justice. I'm obsessed with Attica. If you have not seen the documentary on Showtime, please see it now. It is that good. I wouldn't tell you to watch it if I didn't love it. I saw it to prepare for the directors being on the podcast and, and like, am fascinated. I think it should be required viewing for everybody. My advice for this week is to get some sleep. I really have been working on my, my sleep schedule because... I realized that I've been running on fumes and I've been taking Saturday and Sunday to like catch up to reset so that I can go into the week a little more rested. And I'm so used to pushing through and I'm not even like working nights. I'm not like, you know, I'm not working hard on the weekends anymore, but I have just been not great about sleeping. I'm like, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this. And like, I got to rest. We all have to rest to do our best work. And just because you can push through doesn't mean that you should. Here we go. Family, welcome to another episode of Pod Save the People. I am Diara Ballinger. You can find me on the Instagram and Twitter at Diara Ballinger. I'm Miles Johnson. You can find me at Rapture um, on Instagram and Twitter. I'm Kaya Henderson. You can find me on Twitter at Henderson Kaya. And this is Duray at DIY on Twitter. So, you know, we we can't go on without talking about the verdict that came out this week. Um Although Kyle Rittenhouse obtained a rifle illegally, crossed state border, killed two individuals, um, a jury found him not guilty. Now, I wasn't so surprised by this verdict. I just was following the trial. I was you know, paying attention to the judge who was completely biased. Um, and so, I, I, you know, I just I guess I was not I wasn't surprised. Um, I don't know how to process what's what's happening it's obviously another you know another blow another you know more evidence of 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 white supremacy in this country and its impact on 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 black folks in particular but um but yeah just you know we got to talk about it so 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 let's talk about it what are y'all thinking about the burden Well, damn. Okay. <laughs> um, I think that specifically, you know, I'm always I, I I hate always speaking generationally, but it always feels really, really important. Um, <clears throat> I think that I try not to personalize every single verdict, even though it feels very personal. Every single verdict does feel really personal, um, because. It, 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 the amount of unsafety that you feel in your body, even if it's true, it's just not you. you it's some lies are good to live with in your flesh for the for for, for in life. Um, I do just really get scared about the mistrust that is being birthed in 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 
And I just get, like, I, I, I kind of take it out of, like, my range of, like, people. And I really do think about the babies who are seeing these things. I think about the things that are being really formative in, in people who are in, in, in kids who are in even elementary school, but middle school and high school who are forming how they view the world. And what does this lead a generation to do? I know there are some significant things that happened in my generation when I was younger. Um college age things that happened when I was um something about like Troy Davis I'm thinking about Troy Davis everything from that to like um to um to Trayvon Martin so I'm thinking about all these different things that kind of like helped me form how I saw the world and it gets me really scared about what's what, what we're telling another generation about about safety about justice about their right to be in the world and their right to live another day to see something, you know, the deaths happen, you know? And I think sometimes because these situations happen so much, we forget that a son, a family member got lost and that's the end of the story. Um, and I think that really shapes how... I don't, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a kid person. <laughs> that shapes how kids see their world and that, that shapes what kids can hope for and how safe they feel. And when you kids don't feel safe, it shapes how they dream. And if kids are dreaming less or dreaming safer, then we're, we're living living in a world that's repeating yesterday's. And then that, to me, is where my, my heart goes and where my mind goes. Because um, everywhere else <laughs> is a little bit too painful and a little bit too um, icky and shadowy. This made me worry about myself because literally I was like, Yep, whatever. Like, literally, like, not surprised, not shocked, not re-traumatized, not even worried about the baby's miles. Because <clears throat> when I think about the generations of Black children who have repeatedly seen this from, you know, people who have lynched folks who've gotten off. To, I mean, this is, this is par for the course. And... To expect anything different, I think, is, I mean, the fact that we are surprised and shocked and saddened, I think, speaks to at least Black folks' renewed hopes for America. We always want it to be different, and it's not, and it's not going to be different. Um, I think that the twist in this was they killed white people, and and apparently that's okay, too. Um, I feel, I know my progressive, my white progressive friends are worried in different ways because I think they didn't think this could happen to them. But welcome to the world that some of us have been living in for generations. Um, and so I feel worried because I feel jaded in ways that I don't usually feel. Usually I'm an optimist. Usually I'm here for it. It's going to change or whatever. But <clears throat> um, America continues to show us who she is and continues to show us that she's not interested in changing. I think if people are not voting for judges, like if this is not the case to vote down ballot, people are like, how could this be? Oh, because you didn't vote all the way down ballot. Oh, because you didn't ask yourself who these judges were. Oh, because the Republican Party has been installing judges at a clip like nobody's business, and we are not paying attention to that. We've had this conversation on the pod a few times. And so I just, you know... Um, there, I, I feel like I'm hitting a fatalistic point in how I view these things. Um, and in part, I'm sure it's a coping mechanism because you just can't. I mean, the, the amount of times that this stuff happens, you would be crazy if you allowed yourself to feel this every single time over and over again afresh. And I feel like at 51 years old, I, you know, I done been to this party um, too many times. And so... I don't know. I feel really 
desensitized to that, and that worries me. Uh, my tweet is how I felt about this. Um, I have no new takes, no new analyses, nothing new to say. Today is a reminder that the structure produces outcomes like this as a matter of practice, and the structure can be uprooted and done differently. That's the work I'm here to do. Is that I, you know, my father actually called me, um, he called me, he saw he saw Attica. I'm obsessed with the Attica doc. He saw it, and he called me teary-eyed. And I'm like, Daddy, what's up? And he was like, Dre, how do you just deal with so much hate in your work, like, all day? Like, how do you just, like, it's just, it feels like so much. He's like, I saw this. White people have been evil. This isn't even that old. He's like, these people are as old as I am. Like, how do you deal with it? And I was like, Daddy, you know, I, I had to stop sitting in the pain because I just couldn't move from that place. I had to figure out how to sit in the solution work because I can move there. I, I have power there. I can build new things in that space. And that's how I felt with this. It was surprising that, you know, he killed white people and the verdict was still like this. And one of the messages from that is that white people who help black people won't be protected by the system. That was like the takeaway. Also, you know, I, the judge was not just bad, but it was just brazen, right? Like letting letting him choose the names out of the jury thing, like letting him peer over his shoulder. And I don't know if you saw this, but, you know, the judge allowed Fox News to film in the restricted areas as a part of a documentary, right? Like the, So it was just, it, it was the brazenness of whiteness that I think you see. And if this judge in the end doesn't get removed from the bench for something, it is really, that is a colossal failure of something. Um, but, and I'll talk about this with my news, with my news uh, a little bit later, but it was just a reminder that the system could make different choices if it wanted to, and it chooses to do uh, to do what it does. Like, this isn't happenstance. It's not like it must be this way. Like, these are deliberate choices. And you're like, that jury, how do you not get a hung jury? You don't get one person on the jury who's like, this don't make sense. You know, like, I want to hear that jury room, the juror conversation one day. Like, I wasn't expecting to get um, guilty across the board, but, you know, I was a little hopeful for a mistrial. And to not get that, I think, was like, okay. Yeah, I liked um, Tony Warson's quote about um, needing to be shot, about um, it kind of being the emotional, spiritual work of, in, in, in psychological work of Black people to um, find it in the space to kind of be shot and, and for injustice to feel unjust and to still feel a little bit shook by it because that is um, letting us know that our humanity is still intact. And... Um, and, and 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 something about that brought me a lot of solace when I was um, reflecting on everything. So what you saying, Miles? I gotta give my humanity back. I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> I'm working on it. I'm working on it. I'm working on it. Hey, you're listening to Pod Save the People. Don't go anywhere. There's more to come. In the decades before the Civil War, slavery's grip on America tightened. But soon, a diverse group of abolitionists, both black and white, began to construct a clandestine path to freedom for the enslaved. Hosted by Lindsey Graham, Wondery's podcast, American History Tellers, takes you to the events, times, and people that shaped America and Americans, our values, our struggles, and our dreams. In the latest series, American History Tellers explores the Underground Railroad, a covert network of secret routes and safe houses operated by men and women committed to helping enslaved people escape bondage in the South. Fugitive slaves and anyone helping them face terrible violence and even death if caught. But for those brave enough to 
to risk the journey, the Underground Railroad offered a path to the northern states and Canada where their freedom was assured. Follow American History Tellers on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge this season's American History Tellers, the Underground Railroad, early and ad-free right now on Wondery+. Plus. When it comes to listing your home for sale, everyone and their mom has advice. Oh, honey, who's going to want to buy this place on a cul-de-sac? It's literally a dead end. But for professional advice, a REMAX agent actually knows best. Let's start with a neighborhood analysis. I've been seeing lots of buyers looking to move here. REMAX is the most trusted name in real estate. Visit REMAX.com or download the REMAX app to find the right agent. The right agent can lead the way. Based on 2022 BrandSpark American Trust Study. Each office independently owned and operated. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Now, what's the first thing that you'd do if you had a ton of extra time in a day? Maybe I'd take a nap, go for a run, talk to some friends. Now, a lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. But the question is, time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? Now, the best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what's important to you and to make it a priority. Therapy can help you find what matters to you help you process the world around you, help you think through the most important things, how you spend your time, where you spend your energy, especially your emotional energy. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com people today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash people. I needed some good news or what I thought would be good news um, to counter the weight of the stuff that's going on in the world right now. And so my news is about the federal student loan forgiveness program for public servants. <clears throat> this is a program that um, is designed to incentivize people to go into uh, teaching, law enforcement, and government careers that are usually lower paying than a number of other careers. And the program was started in 2007. Um, and the idea is that it cancels outstanding federal student debt after 10 years of on-time payments for public servants. Now... Um, the good news in this, or why I chose this article, is because um, with this recent expansion, um, 30,000 borrowers got $2 billion in debt relief this round. In fact, right before Thanksgiving, some people are getting $50,000 worth of debt, student loan debt, canceled, which feels like a good news story. Um, in fact, 550,000 people will be closer to debt cancellation um, as a result of this program, which, oh, by the way, ends, the extension ends on in October of 2022, um, which feels janky. But there's a lot of jankiness with what is supposed to be a good news story. Jeez, Louise. Turns out that <clears throat> the design and the execution of this program has been so complicated and so cumbersome and so opaque that very few people could actually take advantage of the program. Um, 
in order to qualify for the program, you have to work for the government or a certain set of approved nonprofits. You have to have loans that are directly from the federal government. You have to be in the direct federal student loan program. And everybody knows that there's about a zillion different other loans besides direct loans that don't qualify. Um, and you have to be enrolled in parts in specific payment repayment plans. Um, and lots of people are enrolled in the wrong payment repayment plans and whatnot. Literally, nobody was getting this money. And so um, the Department of Education um, and the Biden administration have rejiggered the rules of this to allow many, many, many more people to uh, receive federal uh, student loan cancellation which is good news. But the problem is that <clears throat> we designed a program to effectively make sure that slim to no people could get this. And there are so many other people who are um, who have student loans that are not direct student loans that still don't have any relief. And so student debt continues to crush so many people in this country. This, the, the basic requirement, like the, the thing that you need to do to qualify besides working in a government thing is in a government job or a nonprofit is you have to have 120 on-time monthly payments for 10 years. I'm sorry, what? Do you know anybody in the world who has 50000 or $100,000 worth of student loan debt and has 120 on-time payments over 10 years? Because I don't, which means that me and all my cousins and them, we wouldn't be eligible. Even that could disqualifies a huge amount of people. Um and heck, I mean, if it takes you 10 years and you still have a substantive amount of debt, it just reiterates this, you know, debt cycle that we put people in in order to go to school. Um, my article talks about a woman who has literally been fighting for a debt cancellation for more than 10 years. She moved to a city six hours away when her job was eliminated during the pandemic just so that she could get another job that qualified for the program so it didn't wipe out the previous number of payments that she made. I mean, America, come on, we could do better than this. How do we put programs in place that are supposed to alleviate people's stress and pain around student loans and you create a whole new set of problems? And so I brought this to the pod because for people who don't know about it, who do have direct student loans, who do work for the government or particular nonprofits, and who have made 10 years worth of payments for 120 on-time payments, this is for you. And if you haven't heard about it, you should get to the website, ed.gov and studentaid.gov, and you can apply and get this stuff canceled. And for the rest of us, we need to keep on fighting to relieve people of this crippling debt. I'm not, I, I have paid all my student loans. I'm not one of these people who feels like everybody needs to pay their fair share. The way we have done um, education lending is criminal in this country. And so, um, my hat goes off to the public servants who were able to get student loan forgiveness. And my admonition to this administration and, and all of the rest of us is we need to do better. We can do better. We can expand federal student loan cancellation for many more Americans to give them a shot at um, the American dream and a middle class American life. So, Kai, it's so kismet that you this was your article this week. Um, I'm in. Santa Fe with a group of my friends for we're celebrating uh, when our one of my friends is getting married. So we got together. But one of my best friends from law school and we graduated from law school in 2007. 
Um, but she's a prosecutor in West Palm Beach and her loans were forgiven. But she's the only one that she knows that that's happened with. And it was, it's really just like through good luck and coincidence in the grace of God that it, it was able to happen to her. Now she has made 156 on-time payments in the last 10 years. And if you knew my friend, it would all make sense. And she's a Capricorn. So, you know, so, but it worked, it worked for her. You know what I'm saying? So, but it, it was also, there was a point where she had consolidated her loans, but they told her that, that she didn't consolidate in the right ways and that she'd have to start from payment one. And that was like in year eight or something like that. So all that to say, there was so much, you know, so much bureaucracy, so much misinformation, so much lack of direction. And even like, you know, even just lucky that when we were in law school, we had an option to do just federal loans, which is not necessarily an option today. So all that to say, thank you for bringing to the pod. Folks need to look into this if they're public servants have worked for nonprofits and really and really fight for it because it really can make a difference in, um, you know, ha- having carrying a, a, a big amount of, of, of debt. My idea around this is really short and sweet. Um, as somebody who has um, struggled to uh, pay Klarna payments when, when I spend too much at um, ASOS, I think the barrier to <laughs> I think the barrier to uh, access to things that are driven to alleviate people just needs to be. Sometimes I always feel like it's moralized. Like it feels like are you a, are you a good enough person to earn this and as some and, and, and as my mother is somebody who I've seen her um quickly rob Peter to pay Paul to then pay Dante like I've seen the I've seen these things happen I think it's okay to just let the barrier to access to relief not be so that there not be so many rules you know and um I think that's the thing about America too because I'm like trillions of dollars in debt whatever the number is i'm like who are y'all why <laughs> give me this money give me this money <laughs> forgive me stop playing with me stop playing with me put it on car and we'll pay it back call, call, call it a fair trade you got god stop playing with me and that's how i feel about um that's how i feel about that we need to get to a point where it's not somebody pay <laughs> 120 on-time payments. You ain't you ain't never go to take that trip that you knew you weren't supposed to take and got that extra bottle you never supposed to get that one time. It's going to stop you for the rest of your life. I don't like that. I don't like that. <laughs> Not as eloquent. And my, one of, this, this best friend of mine is also a friend who has never missed. She never missed a day of school. That's the type of oh, person. Oh, praise God. So, you know that that it's like that's like point. I was gonna say that's like of right. Because <laughs> even when I think about it, when I miss school, sometimes school missed me. I purposefully skipped, and I don't want to be punished for that. So sometimes I looked at the student loan debt, and then I also looked at the party I wanted to go to, and I did that. I don't want to pay for that for the rest of my life. <laughs> I, I I I want. I want the person who's the the most irresponsible financial person to still get um, things from the U.S. government because the U.S. government has been doing gangster criminal things, and I and I think that we can participate too. <laughs> I don't want us to jump through any of these moral hoops. Miles, I love that, that you was not where, the- That was not where I was expecting that to go. <laughs> that 120 payment really got to me. I said, what? 
Um, you know, a couple things come to mind. Miles, I think that the way that you talked about the moralization of access, I think, is is brilliant. And I, I was thinking about this with something else, but and sort of with Rittenhouse and all the stuff around crime, my news today is it's never lost on me that like we didn't choose poverty poverty chose us right like the reason why my father struggled to pay my loans off and i had to pay them off in the end when teray graduated from college is because like he wasn't set up to succeed in the system but none of our parents were right like it was the generational wealth that didn't exist the legacy of it we talk about endlessly but it's like the moralization so interesting because it the way the system set up assumes that white people made all the right decisions. And you're like, no, the decision was theft, right? The decision was uh, evilness and savagery that resulted in financial gain. And Miles, I think you're right about the like model for me what it means to be debt free, U.S. government. You're not there, right? And you are spending tons of money every single day. And you think about the Trump administration, we paid for rich people. We bought, we bailed rich people out during that administration who didn't need it. And we're just trying to get insulin to be $35 at a cap and people over here thinking it's the end of the world. So that was that. But the second thing I'll say, the only thing to add is that, you know, this is my note to the, the Biden administration is y'all cannot figure out a way to help people understand your wins if it was the last thing on earth, because there are some good things coming out of the administration. This is one that Kaya literally, if you had not put this in the thing, I hear about it. I know about it. Nobody was talking about it. It wasn't a TikTok video. I don't follow the White House Instagram page. But like this is something that has a material benefit for real people. And who knew? And I think that the midterms and the next election People, I've seen people be like, well, Trump did it. And it's like, well, we, you know, say Trump was a nightmare in every possible way, period. And you heard you heard them every day. It was like we cannot escape that Trump cycle. And he was lying about everything. But it's like the Biden world. It's like, I don't know. They, you know, hire Cardi B to get to be a something got to give because they have to figure out how to tell better stories <laughs> because it is the stories we hear the loudest are the people at the border whipping the Haitian refugees. We heard that story endlessly, and that is also true. So we don't we don't ignore those stories. Uh, we also have to tell the other stories so that people know the full range of what's happening and so people can continue to put pressure. Because I do think that some people are sort of checking out, like, this ain't working. And you're like, well, some of it is working, actually. And the part that's working, we should celebrate. And the part that's not, we should push like hell. Um, my news is from Days Magazine. I, this is sounds so awkward because I just changed tones totally. <laughs> like my news is from Days Magazine. Um, I've been doing a lot of reflection, so sometimes I, I well, often I look at what's happening in uh, pop culture and kind of in my head, um, and sometimes through writing, reconnect it with like bigger themes. And I'm really fascinated with two things. And, and one of the things is House of Gucci. I'm really excited to see this movie. But also, I'm uh, always interested in when um, murder films, um, when things that are centering um, violence are becoming enthralling in pop culture and 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 and, 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 and fascinating in pop culture because I do think it's indicative of what Americans, um, specifically Americans that cons consume mainstream content, are then um, finding escapism for. So um, this 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 murderous Italian woman is um, is 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 is. is for me, kind of a catharsis for, it's going to be a catharsis for a lot of people, which is interesting. And then I then go into thinking about 
violence and art and Quentin Tarantino and blah, 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 and blah, blah, blah. And that what's led me to the Days Magazine article, which is for this organization called Art Against Knives. It's a London-based organization that um, actually helps support artists and um, helps artists essentially... Um, if they're celebrating their 10th anniversary, essentially supports artists uh, who are, you know, more overexposed and, and over um, vulnerable to violence. And I thought that was such a fascinating thing when I was reading the article because art often is so violent and art and specifically mainstream art. And I thought it was really interesting that there was an organization that was specifically addressing those, uh, to, me, to me, that, that kind of... Um, weird conversation that art and violence have together and that is actually creating like a bridge to like say like oh no if you're overexposed to violence here's something that we can do where i usually kind of get a little bit disturbed that a lot of art is like is overrepresenting by violence um the spokesperson for the charity told dazed our unique model brings essential specialist support to the borough's most marginalized young people via creative activity they can access mental health support at the same time as producing a track to sexual health support whilst having their nails done this provided by an extraordinary staff team made up of creative professionals, award-winning youth professionals, and young people who have progressed through programs into paid roles. The charity was founded as a direct response to the 2008 stabbing at Oliver Hemsley, a 21-year-old Central St. Martin student who was left in a wheelchair as a result of the unprovoked attack. Um, and this is actually London-based, and I was thinking to myself how uh, just being in New York and being in Atlanta, that I would love to see more organizations really address those things. Um, in the last two years, um, through either suicide or homicide, I've lost um, going on 10 friends um, who are who are all in the creative scene for, um, for me. And it's been one of those things that I just cannot ignore, um, that uh, it, it, it's, it's a hard subject to talk about. But gun violence, um, li, li, uh, I, and then... The people who I know who are overrepresented, who are now in prison because of things. I have a friend who just got sentenced to prison for, um, for, for like an actual stabbing. Um, who was an artist, and I and and somebody else who has literally has a head injury. Who we're actually praying for actively right now. And these type of organizations to me really feel necessary. And I think that often we can look at what people are doing um, over the pond or what other people creative doing creators are doing globally and figure out how to appropriate those things in a good way here or to connect those things and see how they can um so they can see that they can happen here so besides Adele's new album um (laughs) (laughs) besides Adele's new album um Art Against Knives is also something that London is just exporting that is fantastic and I was really inspired by it and um you know in my hunt like um, Miss Kaya for good news that found me and um I, I I wanted to share it if you call me Miss Kaya one more time, me and you are going to have a problem. <laughs> so what do I do? So what do you I? You can call me Kaya. So what do I do when my mother call, hears me on pod say the people and said, "Now I know you did not get on this microphone with these." You're gonna have to. With, you're gonna have to tell her that I threatened your life or something because think about I'm not Miss Kaya yet. Okay. Not yet. Not yet. Miles, thanks for bringing this to the pod. Um, This was really interesting to me to follow your line of thinking around the overrepresentation of violence and the arts ability to counteract violence. I think we don't have to we don't have to go all the way across the pond um, to see examples of arts organizations that are engaging young people to divert them from violence. But I thought it was very interesting um, 
I used to do a lot of international work and I had team members in London. And um, over the last 10 years or so, in fact, the um, youth service funding in the UK has in London has been cut by over 70 percent. And so in and even more in some of the more challenging places um, around the UK. And so. These youth centers, which were funded by the government, um, have seen significant, significant cuts. And, you know, I don't think we recognize when we make this social policy that when we see cuts in diversion programs and things that engage young people, that we should expect to see violence uh, actually increase on the other side, Um, mental health issues increase on the other side. Like, this is all common sense. And we don't seem to put it together because we do this work in silos, right? The arts education work is funded differently and separately from our violence prevention work, which is funded differently and separately from our education work or our mental health services. And we got to start seeing people as whole people and treating them as whole people and not sort of single issue people. The other thing that your comments made me think about is with the overrepresentation of violence and the overglorification of, of um <clears throat> I guess what I I would call the gangster lifestyle is the onslaught of what's on TV right now. Power Book 3 comes out today or Book 2, whatever the next one is coming out today. And Black Mafia family, everybody is watching. And they are wildly violent. Um, We just finished watching The Harder They Fall, which we, you know, praised for seeing historical figures. And they killed a whole lot of people. (laughs) And so... Um, there, you know, I, I was watching um, Black Mafia Family and realizing that like 50 Cent is like the Tyler Perry of American gangsterism, right? Like this dude has 59 different shows on right now that are all about the drug game and all about killing and all about violence. And I think about the the you know, the people who are on the front lines every day in these youth centers and in these nonprofit organizations trying to send our young people a different message versus the like radical proliferation of what kids are seeing or what young people are seeing on TV, what we're all seeing on TV um, and in movies. And I don't know how you con- how you counteract this thing with, you know, the nonprofit funding that we give to these kinds of organizations. So um, that was sort of disturbing to me. <clears throat> I I think for me, I'm just thinking about this very practically. The royal family has had some issues with race. I think it would be such an easy win for Prince William to say, you know what? I'm just going to write a check. So I don't know. I guess that's that's not his money. That's That's not his money. That's not his money. That's the (laughs) government's money. He's got his own money, too. He's got his own Mm. money, too. Now we're talking right because I was talking about Robin Peter and Paul and Prince William. Come on. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, or, you know, Megan and Harry out here with their foundation. Listen, this is easy, y'all. Very, very, very easy to do. I, I just don't understand why an organization that has been has such a marvelous track record that is doing such powerful, compelling work is struggling to get funding in the United Kingdom. With so many people now trying to be on trends, with trying to be more multicultural and more pro-Black, 
Y'all better write a check. So um, two things come to mind. Uh, first is, uh, this is a reminder that we underfund communities of color everywhere. So when people talk about the global aspect of anti-Blackness, it's not just in America. It's not just in uh, Latin America where people talked about Brazil or Colombia. Uh, we see it in the UK too, right? We see it all across the globe that people sort of when people decide where money goes, it's not to our communities and to hold them up. The other thing, though, is that there is uh, not even newer research. It's This is like research that's been around for a while that shows that in a city of 100,000, each new nonprofit community organization leads to about a 1% drop in the homicide rate, a 1% reduction in violent crime, and a almost 1% reduction in the property crime rate. That investing in people changes the landscape of options that people have. That makes sense, right? And even with this data, you know, people will talk about follow the research, follow the research, and then they'll be like, put more money in the police department. You're like, well, the police department money, actually, the research is the exact opposite. We're doing a, a thing on Rikers right now. Uh, Rikers, as the number of staff has increased, Rikers has gotten more dangerous. Adding staff has not made Rikers safer. The data actually shows something else. Else, So I'm so interested when people talk about like, oh, the data should lead us, da, da, da. Because you're like, the data actually says nonprofits are not just cosmetic things. They're not just nice to have. They actually have a, a legitimately, uh, like a measurable impact on crime and violence in communities. All right, y'all. My news is from NPR. I think I've been on an NPR kick. Just love it. Um, so this is about Jessica. Watkins, who will be the first Black woman to live and work on the International Space Station. Now, I wanted to talk about this article, one, to celebrate Jessica Watkins, but also, so we all know, our whole family and community knows this sister is going to be up in space. And for y'all other NASA astronauts on this, this, this space station, we know she's there and we want to make sure she's protected. Okay. Oh, so damn. Two, 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 two reasons for covering this. Because you're not about to be doing our sister wrong up in space and we can't get to her. So this is just fabulous news. And so Jessica Watkins is actually from Maryland. She's been living in Colorado. Um, this sister has a Bachelor of Science in Geology and Environmental Sciences from Stanford and a doctorate in Geology from UCLA. Um, a lot of her graduate research was on the emplacement mechanisms of large landslides on Mars and Earth. Yes, sis. Yes. We, we love you. Bless you. Bless you. So um, this, this news is, is you know, is, is, is short and sweet. Jessica Watkins is going to be the first Black woman to be, um, you know, living and working on this space station. She joined NASA um, uh, astronauts in 2017 and has been working in the space agency's research centers and particularly working, um, working on what's going on with Mars. Um, and she told Colorado Public Radio, I do hope that all young girls, especially young girls of color that are interested in STEM and interested in exploring space feel empowered to do so. I just hope young girls across the country feel that way now. So shout out to Jessica Watkins. Sis, we are paying attention. And let's figure out how you can send us some tweets or, you know, phone phone home so that we know you're okay up there. 
So that this really reminded me of uh, when everybody was kind of in the uproar about Jeff Bezos and everything that was happening with him. And I kind of, and everybody was um, calling on the Joe Scott Heron um, uh, uh, poem, uh, Why Do You on the Moon? And I kind I, I just did not agree with everybody's conclusion with it because I knew that Black people really found a, a home in, a, a, a lot of Black culture is about finding a home in space, in space, in the ideas of space, in, in, and through mysticism and science has been such an intricate part of um, Black culture. So I, I was, I, it, something about it gave me a little tension that we were kind of disassociating and saying like, well, that's for white people. Space travel and interest is for, is for white people. Even when I was 23, which was six months ago, um, <laughs> when, I, when I was 23, my first book was um, what was centered on a little Black queer kid going to Mars. Um, my boyfriend is, an astro- is, is, is a professional astrologer and artist um and space and universal themes have been such an intricate part of the artists that i love to sunra to octavia butler to Samuel delani and i just love when that's being actualized because the math part and the bravery part is something that i will not be accessing in this lifetime i have made peace with that <laughs> so i love that while i'm while some people are here doing the imagination work the spiritual work there's some people who are brave enough to do the numbers into I I don't understand the kind of backflips that when you're when you're underneath that kind of pressure. I don't know how people deal with that, but I'm glad there is somebody there who um, is more reckless with 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 their numbers in their lives and who's willing to do it. All hands on deck. This goes into the files of Black People Can Do Anything for me. Mm -hmm. So um, come on, Sister Jess. Um, I'm down with you. I'm not really worried about you. disappearing or anything like that. I feel like we gonna have a good eye on you but it's good to know that cousin Diara got some people in case anything goes down um I <laughs> I am excited um to learn about this young lady and I also think um that it is an incredible teachable moment you know as you recounted what she studied Diara literally like I That is way above my pay grade. And I think while we are looking at this particular moment, there's an opportunity to deconstruct the pathway from little Jessica, black girl who dreamed about space at some point to where she is today. We talk about wanting more black kids to, you know, be involved in STEM careers, but we don't actually teach young people what the pathway is. We don't explain what the geological blah, 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 whatever you just said she studied. We don't, I don't know what that's about. And I got multiple degrees. And so if our young people are going to be able to do this, we need to use moments like this to lift up and break down, quite frankly, um, what it is you need to study and why these things are interesting so that we can engage a new generation so that Jessica is the first, but not the last, that Jessica is, you know, busting through doors, but holding doors open for many, many more people to come behind her. And so I want Sister Jess to do a cartoon or something. She can do it on Reconstruction if she'd like, come on to Reconstruction and help us teach young people Um, what it is that she's doing and what it takes to get there so that, you know, we're having the Soul Train line and the International Space Station because there's so many of us up there. Yes, the Soul Train line in space. (laughs) (laughs) So first, shout out 
to DR because this is another one that if you not put in the chat, literally I hadn't heard about Jessica, Dr. Watkins, hadn't seen it, had none of it. So thank you for uh, bringing it. I didn't know that only seven of the 249 people who have ever boarded the space station since its creation were black. That is wild. And I only know this because I was in a, um, I'm a part of an unconference that has all these incredible people. And some of the people are former astronauts. Uh, and one of the people is one of the space doctors. And I was fascinated by like, what does it mean to be, he like studies to do medicine on space. So like to, you know, the, the doctors actually don't go up. So they deliver the medicine via telemedicine. Like when people get sick, that's how they, uh, that's how they deliver it. But it was so interesting because I was like, well, how many programs? And he's like, one. I'm like, well, how many people are in the programs? It's like eight a year. You know, like the pipeline for this stuff is actually just so tiny that knowing about it is not even half the battle. Knowing about it is 90% of the battle because it's one or two pathways to even get to the funnel. And then getting out of the funnel is its own challenge. But it just reminded me, partly to what Kai said, I think about my work with kids is, you know, what does it mean to expose young people to these things? Not as not as even aspirational and like a big A sort of way, but like, a, you know, our cousin Jessica's up there. Like our cousin, you know, like what does it mean to just help people see that? And like, that's what I saw with this is like, I cannot wait uh, to find a picture of Dr. Jessica Watkins and show Sailor my niece. And just, it was like a random thing. Like, did you know, did you know she bought the living space? And she'd be like, oh, and it'd be normal for her. Not like a big deal for me, but it just is normal for her. It's really cool. So I'm excited to, to see the way that this uh, seeps into culture. And like Kai said, Black people, everything we touch gets better. We're going to be the only people on the space station soon. I mean, people are going to be like, why they not letting other people up? We were like, because, mm, you know, it's too much flavor up there for y'all right now. So <laughs> I'm excited to see that happen. It looks like I'm uh, Debbie Downer today on uh, the news front. But uh, my news is about a, a rape case with... Um, uh, a man who was a teenager at the time, Christopher Belter, he's now 20. He pled guilty uh, to third degree rape uh, with four women. And the let me take you to the end. The end is that the judge felt like incarceration just was not the right uh, space for him and ordered him to six years of probation instead. And the judge is about to turn 70. So he is about to automatically be forced to retire. And um, I brought this here because let me just take you to the end of my comments and I'll work back. I brought it here because often we think about the disparate impact of the criminal justice system um, on people of color, uh, on black kids and da, da, da. And people sort of are like, well, you know, you do the crime, you pay the time. They're like, this is what the rules are. We got to change the rules, you know, da, 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 da. And then you come to a case like this and you remember that the rules are all a game anyway. That like for white people, the rules don't really become the rules. Not even that I think that this boy needs to be in prison for the next six years or however many years. But this wasn't even like a case where they were competing stories. He's like, yep, I did rape them. Yep, I did. Um, I feel bad about it. And I hope they know I'm remorseful. <laughs> You're like, is that is that the is that the case that we're dealing with right now? And it just was really surprising to me. And, you know, the lawyers for the families obviously felt like this didn't make sense. And, you know, the district attorney didn't make a comment. But, uh, you know, connected white people just uh, skirt the skirt the rules. And this what's what, what, the wildest part about this to me is that this boy faced almost no accountability. So he initially got put on probation by another judge, violated the terms of that probation, then goes to this case 
And there's no consequence for him even violating the probation on that one. And mind you, there are hordes of black people who are facing full terms for a violation of probation that is basic. Like, you know, you missed the curfew. You didn't come to the place at the right time. And it re-triggered their entire sentence. This guy is openly flouting the terms of his probation. And like, there's no, literally no consequence. And it is just... I brought it here because I didn't know where else to put it in my life and I needed to process this. Uh, but a reminder that the system could do very different things if it wanted to. The system chooses to do these things uh, to our people. White patriarchal violence is A, invasive. But then also when I think about, because I always, certain things always get difficult. I don't don't know why around murder, it's a little bit different for me, but like, uh, I really think about like, how do we actually go to this utopian space in my head where these moments don't don't happen or we don't um, consistently uh, produce people who participate in white patriarchal violence. Um, And it it always, (laughs) it's, it's just, the, the biggest takeaway that I got from it is that the, the tension between wanting to have ways that this doesn't happen and maybe ways that um, uh, transform transform minds and, and past experiences so this violence doesn't happen, that maybe it's just not the, the best places in prison, always gets stopped because of uh, a lack of like accountability when it comes to white men and when the lack of accountability when it comes to this type of um, violence. So it's hard to even have those conversations or move forward on those conversations because the amount of justice that's, that, that uh, there's just no justice when those things happen, when those things happen. And it just kind of filled me with frustration. <laughs> there's really nothing super intelligent or articulate that I have to say about it. Besides it gets frustrating specifically as somebody who wants people to start thinking about other ways outside of um, punitive um, punishment and in, in the prison system of how to restore society. And you can't have those conversations when these things are happening and, and when, uh, vulnerable uh people's lives are not being taken seriously and 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 the and, and white power continues to be uh what and what what rules things and not any type of actual sense of justice or wanting to wanting to heal and it's, just, it's maddening i think the other thing that's so shocking about this case is that i was just reading some other um articles about it as well but there were several adults that were also involved in kind of creating this party house atmosphere, right? And they were supplying these young girls with alcohol, marijuana, kind of creating conditions for them to be sexually assaulted. So I think, you know, it's also just an extension, you know, this this is a 16 year old who is, um, you know, who is not an adult and, clearly has no boundaries and adults are actually facilitating and encouraging this disgusting and violent behavior. So it's just, yes, it's patriarchy. Yes. It's it's, it's all of these things, but it's also just, it's just sickening too. I mean, I think there's just like a part of like, where is the humanity in any of these, these human beings and the fact that these victims um, so courageously stood up, um, testified in court, told their stories, which also, if you read some of their testimony, it's just, it's devastating. It is just devastating. So I think just to the, just where are the, where are these people's humanity in all of this? 
y'all don't got nothing better to do in Lewistown, Niagara Falls, wherever the hell y'all are living. This is just, it's just crazy to me on so many levels. Apparently, we haven't even heard the details of the barbarism of this serial rapist. I mean, this dude is on probation for raping people and he rapes, he continues to rape people. And the judge does not feel like jail time is warranted. Eight years of probation, that's just, or six years, whatever it is, that's just time for him to rape more women because that's what he did over the last probationary period. I mean, it is uh, what this says to young women. Um, what it had to take for, you know, this young lady to testify. I read that she vomited in the bathroom after she heard the sentence. I mean, you're re-traumatized all over again. She was raped all over again by the judge. And he gets to go retire? Miss me with that. This is why, y'all, let me tell you something. <laughs> it is It is a wonder, a wonder that people are not raging far more than what is currently going on out in these streets because literally the way we allow white men to do what they want to do however they want to do it is I, I like I mean it I don't like I rarely have nothing to say but I don't even know what to say about this and the judge offered no excuse no no, no rationale no whatever and we just pick up and go to work the next day it's just okay and he gets to go back to school and you know I, to me when when systems like the judicial system um, fails we have other ways to respond to this school he would not come back to my school I don't care who what where when why you couldn't you couldn't go to school for the life of you bro you couldn't get a job anywhere that I had anything to do with you couldn't go to the CBS if I had something to do with it and so it's time for us all to be responsible and not allow his family clearly is coddling him and allowing him to do this and more and it's time for the good people who do have conscience to begin to act and to say this is not who we want in our society we can make him a pariah um, even if the judge didn't and so I think whoever his pharmacist is should refuse him service I don't know if this is legal DR you might have to come get me out of jail for saying this or some jazz but I would do everything within my godly power to make sure this dude don't get a thing I mean it's a good that air is free because if I found a way to stop him from getting that I'd stop him from getting that too don't go anywhere more politics the people's coming Did you know that women make up 56% of law students? That's grounds for bragging rights at the dinner table for your conservative uncle who still thinks women belong in the kitchen. It's clear that the future of the legal field is female. So why are so many legal podcasts and reviews authored by men? Hi, I'm Leah Littman. I'm Kate Shaw. And with Melissa Murray, we are the hosts of Strict Scrutiny. Each week, we break down the latest headlines and biggest legal questions facing our country through the lens of diverse voices to give you expert views you won't hear anywhere else. Strict Scrutiny is your guide to the Supreme Court. New episodes drop every Monday, plus bonuses whenever the Supreme Court takes away another one of our rights. Make sure to subscribe to Strict Scrutiny wherever you get your podcasts. The Crooked Store's latest collection has a clear message for anyone trying to take away abortion rights. Don't. The No Trespassing collection features four different designs, each inspired by a different state where abortion is under attack. There's Stay Out of My Swamp for Florida, Stay Out of My Hole for Arizona, 
stay out of my prickly pear for Texas and stay out of my strip for Nevada. But obviously, I'll be wearing these no matter where I am. A portion of proceeds from the collection will go to Vote Save America's F-Bands, the Fight Back Fund, which currently is supporting abortion rights organizations across Arizona, Nevada, and Florida. Head to cricket.com slash store to shop. It's 2024. We're facing another presidential election with huge stakes. You want to help. You don't know where your money will actually make a difference or how to figure that out. Ensure you love to take an edible and not think about it, but you can't because you do care. Let Vote Save America make it easy for you with their new anxiety relief program. Here's how it works. You set up a monthly recurring donation at the level that feels right for you, and Vote Save America will send 100% of it to the grassroots organizations and down-ballot races that need it most. Then, at the end of the month, they'll tell you where your dollars went. That's it. Set it and forget it. Vote Save America has already raised $52,000 in monthly recurring donations. Love it. That's great. From over 1,000 amazing, sustaining donors who've signed up and trusted Vote Save America to make their dollar go further. But we still have a long way to go, and Vote Save America needs your help to get there. Sign up at votesaveamerica.com and enjoy your edible. <laughs> Legal disclaimer, paid for by Vote Save America, votesaveamerica.com, not authorized by any candidate or candidate's committee. Now let's get into Malcolm Bell. I'm, I didn't even know Malcolm Bell had written this book. I didn't know anything about this until I'd seen the Attica documentary and then talked to people. During his time as a New York State prosecutor, Malcolm bravely blew the whistle on the police who committed extensive torture and murder during the 1971 Attica prison riot. And now we had Stanley Nelson and Tracy Curry on the show to discuss a new Showtime documentary on Attica recently. And if you haven't heard that episode or seen their doc, you gotta go do it, like I said. Malcolm's book is an insider account to the aftermath of Attica. If you're like me, you wondered what happened after Attica when the dust settled. Well, my conversation with Malcolm addressed all those questions and my curiosities, and I'm sure it will for you too. Here's my interview with Malcolm Bell. Let's go. Malcolm Bell, thank you so much for joining us today on Pod Save the People. Well, I'm very pleased that you were kind enough to have me. So I just saw the Attica uh, documentary, and I must say that I literally did not know anything about Attica really before before seeing it. I think I'd heard about it, and I'd heard that there was like a prison uprising, but I couldn't have told you anything more than that. I saw it, and I am like full-blown, this is the wildest thing, this should be required uh, for everybody. I had Stanley and Tracy on the podcast, and I didn't know what the aftermath was. And then they were like, oh, there's a whole book by Malcolm Bell, who was a whistleblower. And I was like, oh my God, AJ, can we find Malcolm Bell? And then you said yes. So uh, thank you for coming. I am excited to learn from you. Well, it's a great pleasure to be here, and I thank you for having me. Okay, can you just walk us through how how did you get involved with Attica? You know, I read the book, but can you tell us like was it a phone call? Did you get a probably wasn't an email back in 1971 or like, no. <laughs> not that era? Okay, what did you how did it happen? It was a total accident. I've been doing civil litigation in Manhattan for quite a few years and it was fun, but it didn't seem that important. It was other people's money I was fighting over. And I decided criminal law would be more exciting. And the best way to learn about criminal law is to work for a prosecutor. So I answered a blind ad for prosecutors and it turned out to be the Attica special prosecutor that was appointed by Governor Rockefeller after the terrible tragedy. A blind ad, really? 
blind ad in the New York Law Journal. Prosecutors wanted. I told them I had no prosecutorial experience, but I was willing to learn. And I had done a lot of complicated cases, which Attica certainly was. So can you talk us through uh, you joining the team? Because you joined a couple years in, right? You weren't there at the beginning of the special prosecutor's office, right? That, that's right. It was just something on the television that came and went. Uh, and it was two years later that I answered this blind ad, September of 73, almost exactly two years later that I went to work uh, for the uh, Attorney General of New York in the uh, special prosecutor's office. Okay, so give us a rundown uh, for listeners who have no clue about anything that you did. What? So you joined the special prosecution team. You were in there just trying to figure out what's true and what's not true. What happened? Well, when I got there, uh, the prosecutor's staff was much too small for the job at hand, and it had made a decision, a very fateful decision, that it would prosecute crimes committed during the insurrection in chronological order, meaning the crimes that prisoners may have committed during the first four days of the insurrection and save the 39 homicides that the police had committed for the very end when it turns out, and rather obviously, all the evidence was stale, witnesses had gone far and wide, and it was really late in the game. So when I joined the uh, prosecutor's office, they worked with a grand jury that had indicted uh, 62 inmates, prisoners, and uh, zero law officers. And I told the man who hired me, uh, Tony Simonetti, who was basically running the prosecutor's office at that point, that all things being equal, I'd rather prosecute a a cop than than a prisoner. And he said, why? And I said, I had nothing against cops, but I thought the uh, the prisoners, the, the system was going to land on them, whereas uh, the police would be hiding behind the system. Uh, I was right about that. So you thought that the police might be uh, might be hiding stuff, or that the system might be protecting them. And it, and you know, the end of the story is that that was true. Is that there seemed to be a some collusion between the state police, every, all the things at hand. Was there like a particular moment where you were like, oh my goodness, like they are hot, like they destroyed something. Was there like a, did you call for a document that you knew existed and all of a sudden it didn't exist? Like what was the moment that you were like, wow, this is a cover up? Well, it's more gradual than that. And I was quite naive uh, in those days, even though I was in my forties by then, uh, I you know, it's a very sheltered life when you're in civil litigation in New York because you just work on one case at a time. And uh, a an official report had come out the year before on Attica that said the police had engaged in much unnecessary shooting. Now, when you do unnecessary shooting in a crowd of 1,300 guys, there's a very good chance a lot of that is criminal. And as the situation was described in this report, it was pretty obvious that the police and when I say police, I should, I should specify, of the police who, who were engaged in recapturing the prison by, by force, which to me means violence, um, only half of them discharged their weapons. Um, only they, they admit, most of them admitted that, and we found a few others that had done so, and uh, it's possible that others had done, a whole lot of, of others had done so, but didn't we couldn't know about it, but as as we studied the evidence, it was pretty clear that they had given statements to the police detectives 
that uh, made it clear that they had uh, fired their weapons and the number of shots they fired. And I, I had the handicap, we all did, and that uh, the police were lying a lot. And right after the prison was retaken, uh, the police destroyed a whole lot of the evidence of what they had done. They'd moved bodies before locating, you know, showing where they were. They, a whole lot of photographs mysteriously did not come out. The um, police made a basic failure to keep track of who had what weapons. So one rifle killed three men, and we had no idea who fired that rifle. Another rifle killed two men and injured a third, and uh, we had no idea who had that rifle. And so we had an uphill fight to get more than a half a dozen murder cases out of what the police had done. Uh, but there was a whole lot of reckless endangerment, which is basically a seven-year felony. It can put you in for seven years. If um, you can prove that somebody shot at somebody he shouldn't have, but you can't prove that he hit him. And uh, that would have been enough. And there were an awful lot of troopers that we had evidence um, sufficient to convict them uh, of that crime. But uh, with this tiny staff, the, uh, the prosecutor's office had not gotten around to that. And uh, so um, let, me, let me just backtrack a little. Uh, at the time the assault on the prison began, the, the prisoners had placed uh, hostages on these raised roofs called catwalks um, inside the prison holding knives at their throats, trying to deter the assault. Well, it was more and more obvious as things went on that the state was not going to let the lives of a few prisoners or a few hostages stop them from getting their prison back. So snipers, um, state police snipers on the roofs of the cell blocks were able to pick off those so-called executioners and uh, no, no hostage died from any of the cuts he received. Two of the Two of the hostages did receive pretty serious cuts in their necks, but uh, the shooting was so good that it, it uh, took out the uh, inmates before they were able to kill anybody. Um, thereafter, there was almost no justification for shooting, but the shooting went on like mopping up on Iwo Jima for another uh, five, six, seven minutes. It's a little hard to tell because the state police video uh, that they made of the retaking uh, had mysteriously been shortened so that it didn't show any shootings. Uh, we only had about four minutes of video for, you know, the good parts were obviously cut out and I was doing my best to prove that and who had done it. Did you ever find out who, like, who, who was doing the cutting? Who was deleting things? Who was destroying stuff? Like, or, and do you remember the moment where you were like, where, you, where it like dawned on you that it wasn't you being paranoid? You weren't just like, trying to ding the police, you were like, wow, this is actually a cover-up. Well, it was apparent from the start the police had covered up. What I was very slow on was realizing that my office was going to facilitate that cover-up. The best way to do a cover-up is to make it look as though you're making a serious effort. And here I was, a, a guy with a good pedigree, and if, if they called me in and they couldn't get any convictions, then it would make the effort look a little better than it otherwise might. But I was very fortunate. The spring after I was uh, hired, I became chief assistant in the office, mainly because I worked very hard and was very interested in trying to prosecute the police who had uh, shot people and shot at people they shouldn't have 
whereas the other people in the office, most of whom were ex-prosecutors, were not interested in doing that. So anyway, I was given a, a fresh grand jury in the spring of 2075, which is very late in the game. And I was putting evidence in uh, three days a week, uh, calling trooper after trooper as, as a witness. We had the people, you know, given that there were a whole lot of troopers who did not fire their weapons, uh, there were a lot of potential witnesses. Now, a whole lot of them said, oh, I don't remember. I don't remember. The one thing they all did seem to remember was as they went down the catwalks, these, these roofs of these corridors in the prison to get at where the hostages were being held, right in the intersection of those corridors, it was a place called Times Square. Um, there was one uh, prisoner who was on the ground and two uh, troopers had emptied their revolvers into him and uh, left him with the appearance that his eyes were shot out. Actually, bullets did not penetrate his eyes. It was fragments of his skull that, that penetrated his eyeballs. And it, it, it's a ghastly picture. You can see it right in the center of my book. Yeah, yeah, I saw it. It's wild. To get back to your question, it, I, I was um, believing that I'd be allowed to finish um, getting these uh, criminal troopers indicted. And uh, yet the closer I came, the more obstacles uh, were placed in my path. And finally, I was, I was taken away from my grand jury, much to their disappointment, I found out later when I talked to six of them. And uh, lo and behold, only one trooper was ever indicted. And that was sort of by accident. It, 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 uh, the, my office thought that they could have a vote on him and he would not be indicted, but lo and behold, uh, that wonderful grand jury uh, did indict him of reckless endangerment, and he's, he was facing the seven-year charge. But that all got wiped out uh, later when um, the governor, Kerry, by this time in his wisdom, decided that the way to have equal justice was not to prosecute anybody for anything, even though there were 43 homicides. And and what did the people in your office say um, where... When, when you were doing this? Were people like cheering you on quietly? Were people like, you know, this is wild, don't do this, Malcolm? Like, what, what were your colleagues saying? Uh, mostly they were staying off to themselves. I mean, we'd have lunch together, we'd have breakfast together when we were in the motel in Buffalo going to the grand jury. Um, everything was very friendly. Uh, we did not talk about our work. Um, there was one investigator who was totally on my side, a guy named Lenny Brown. He was the guy who discovered uh, that uh, the police had uh, withheld or destroyed uh, six uh, color photographs uh, when uh, first, when that man I told you about was being blown away on Times Square with the two um, troopers emptying their pistols. And then a little later, there was another inmate uh, I taught inmates, I understand it's prisoners now, but you know who I mean. Um, he was he was lying on the pavement uh, right in the center of Times Square pavement. And uh, he was probably gonna die quite quickly because he'd been hit in the lungs with a disintegrating rifle bullet. Thumb-dumbs are outlawed, outlawed, but the police use a disintegrating bullet anyway. And it had shattered inside his lungs, so he was bleeding to death. And this other trooper came up 
saw him lying there and blasted a shotgun through his neck, killing him instantly. Uh, that, that was one of the prosecutors, one of the uh, troopers I, I wanted to indict for murder. Do you think that there are still documents that are suppressed from Attica or, or no? Have they all been made public? Oh, there, there are lots of lots of documents suppressed, thousands of pages, um, including all of the grand jury testimony or almost all of the grand jury testimony that I put in, which, um, if I remember correctly, was about 7000 pages of testimony. Uh, that is suppressed. A lot of other documents are suppressed. Now, uh, there were two um, breaches in the, the wall of silence, as it were, doc with documents. One was that the uh, prisoner lead counsel, Elizabeth uh, Liz Fink, um, gained access to the um, documents. And then she puts it in another documentary that just came out. I stole them. She, she made off with the documents. Um, the other was that, uh, that author Heather Ann Thompson, who has this uh, great uh, book, uh, Blood in the Water, the story of the whole beginning and an aftermath of the insurrection. Um, she uh, was poking around in an office that the Attorney General used to have in Buffalo and she found a whole other bunch of documents that she never should have been shown if the state was doing its job of suppressing the evidence properly. And uh, she copied a whole lot of them. So um, references to them appear in her book. But yes, uh, they couldn't take them all, Liz and, and Heather. And there's a lot of stuff that's, that's still suppressed. And uh, that's one of the reasons the book on Attica can't close yet. This stuff was suppressed, and the other reason it can't close is that the state afterwards swindled the hostages and their families and then would never apologize. Uh, that's still a, an open thing. Who has the power to, uh, to, to, to open up the documents, to make them public? The, um, the attorney general can, can release whatever he or she finds uh, it, it's not always easy to find this stuff now. You, you have offices that have closed. The Trade Center went down that had some offices. Some, yes. Um, the court uh, can release the grand jury uh, minutes, uh, transcripts, if it wants. Um, the Attorney General made a motion to the court in 2013 to try to get a whole lot of uh, that stuff released. And I guess also a thing called um, the Meyer Report. After I went in the uh, spring of 75, after I'd been shut down and I'd resigned in protest from the office and I tried to work things out um, through channels, I finally went to Tom Wicker at the New York Times and told him about the cover up. And, uh, and uh, the, the officials, it was amazing to see these officials uh, scurrying around trying to cover their backsides. And uh, what they finally did was appoint a guy named uh, Bernard S. Meyer to form another commission to investigate the investigation of the riot. And uh, he issued a big report that agreed with my facts, but said, oh no, there was no cover up. It was just bad judgment that they didn't prosecute the main perpetrators. And, um, and that sort of thing. And that's in his, he had three volumes of, of, of this report. 
And that's in the first volume. What was released was, was quite shocking, both for the facts it revealed and the way that uh, Bernie Meyer leaned over backwards to protect anybody um, really high up, specifically Governor Nelson Rockefeller and Attorney General Louis Lefkowitz. Uh, they were the people at the time who bore the real responsibility for the cover-up. I don't know whether Rockefeller planned the cover-up or he just took the benefit of it from minions who knew to do it for him. You make a choice not to name the officers that you probably have really good proof they kill people. And it wasn't all of them, but it was definitely a subset. Um, do you think that do you think that there's any because there's no statute of limitations on murder, right? Do you think that there's any chance that there will ever be a prosecution of these officers? Or do you think that this is just, uh, you know, a historian's game at this point? Technically, they you're absolutely right. They, they could be prosecuted for murder because there is no limit. Um, I don't think it'll ever happen. I just don't get a sense that anybody wants to do it anymore. Um, some of the people have been named um, that I, I feel, a, I, as, a, as an ex-prosecutor, I have an obligation that most people don't have um, to uh, not name names. Um, Liz Fink in the documentary that Michael Hull just uh, recently released, uh, she names uh, one of the guys that uh, blew away uh, Kenny Malloy in Times Square, the man without the eyes. Um, and uh, yeah, he, he could be prosecuted. Uh, the other guy could be prosecuted. The one that shot uh, Sam Melville, the mad bomber, so-called, he was, he was a, a radical in the uh, 60s who believed in stopping the Vietnam War by blowing things up, which was, you know, <laughs> I didn't agree with. Um, and he was more or less executed by this state police detective who um, claimed he was about to throw a Molotov cocktail at him, which didn't happen. Uh, and so the, the detective just uh, fired a big uh, shotgun slug into his uh, body and he, he bled out quite quickly. I would have wanted to prosecute that guy for murder too. He he has already gone to his reward, so the good Lord is doing whatever is needed for him, I believe. Now, can you just go over the facts one more time? How many people were killed? How many of the ho how many of the hostages were killed? And were any of the um and and who killed them? Okay. The first guy killed was um the guard, uh, Bill Quinn, who was hit over the head on the first day of, of the insurrection and died on the third day. After that, um, prisoners killed three other prisoners uh, quite brutally, stabbed 20 to 40 times, throats cut. And that was not known by the authorities until afterwards after they found the bodies um, in, the, in the cell blocks. And that happened during uh, the insurrection. And then at the end, the um, state police and a few uh, corrections officers who should not have taken part uh, under orders of Governor Rockefeller, they were ordered not to take part, but they did anyway, claimed not to have heard the order. And um, they, they killed um, 10 hostages and 29 inmates, prisoners, shooting them all to death and promptly announced that no prisoners had killed the dead hostages. Well, that, that was false and it was ex 
exposed the next day by the medical examiner, Jack Edland. And he suffered for telling the truth about that. Um, he was hounded to death, an early death. He died at 657 because of what he had been put through. Um, it's, it's a long story and it's sort of in the back of my book. And uh, I, I count him as the 44th uh, casualty of, of Attica. But uh, yeah, there was, there was virtually no reason for any more shooting after, after the hostages' lives were saved by some good police work at the beginning. Uh, the rest was just bad police work and uh, to a very large extent, racially driven. Um, you, and it, you saw in the documentary um, uh, the aspects of the racism. It's, um, it's uh, very apparent in, in any telling of the story. And uh, it's uh, like a, a, a macro version of, of the, the Black Lives Matter tragedies that are occurring as we speak. What do you say to people who are like, this is the wildest thing I've ever seen. I can't believe I didn't know. How do we make sure this never happens again? What do you say to people who say that? Well, number one, I'd say, see the film. See uh, Firelight's uh, documentary that uh, Stanley Nelson and Tracy Curry put together. Um, I would say, read Heather Thompson's book. I would say, read my book. Incidentally, uh, I just learned they're going to put out a paperback in my book, uh, next year. And I look forward to that because I always wanted it to be in paperback. So I always wanted it to be where, where people who didn't buy hardcovers could read it. And uh, I just hope it'll show up in a few airports. Um, it, 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 it's, I think you've had the experience yourself. Uh, once, once you see the film or, or anything like that, you realize that this, just how terrible it was. And, and one thing I got out of the film was, at Attica anyway, um, uh, the, the prisoners were more decent than the police. And uh, a lot of people don't realize that can happen. And there it was. And it's, it's very hard to deny after you've seen that film, I think. Boom. Um, I'll ask you, as we close, is there anything that you'll ne- like? What will you never forget about uh, about your time uh, trying to prosecute these officers? Is there like a I don't know? I have to imagine you, you learned so much, and I wrote a book too, and I know that there's always stuff you can't put in the book because at some point you got to make a decision to cut something, and you know there's a story that means a lot to you, but it didn't make the cut. You know, what are the things that you will never forget about this? Oh gosh. You know, I forget what I ate for breakfast two days ago. And, and you, you've listened to me. I, I, I remember Attica pretty well. And uh, I guess I stopped being so naive. Um, I switched over. I've been a moderate Republican. I'd voted for Richard Nixon for president. Uh, I, I admit that. Um, Attica, the experience, you know, and we're so politicized these days, people can say it moved me to the left. No, it opened my eyes to what's really going on. I do not believe I'm left or right. Uh, you may have that experience yourself. The, uh, 
the color photos of Billy Quinn's skull after the inmates had, had broken it in, has always stayed with me. Uh, a lot of the autopsy photos have stayed with me. I had to work with them. And uh, one day I went down to the, uh, uh, well, the autopsy room on First Avenue in Manhattan and watched a morning of autopsies. Um, it's 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 an eye-opening experience. Did um did did you ever talk to any of the families of the victims? I talked to a, a lot of um, hostage families. Um, after Liz Fink and her team uh, obtained the uh, big settlement uh, for the prisoners who were tortured, and that's another thing. I mean, um, I. To answer your question, I can suddenly answer your question. The thing that impressed me most, I suppose, was the extent to which law enforcement officers tortured prisoners after they had surrendered. And just about all of them were tortured. And just about all of them who testified later, um, when I say later, in the year 2000, almost uh, 30 years later, wept on the witness stand. That that was really powerful. There's a lot needs doing in this country in criminal justice. And the first thing is I hope this and your talk with uh, uh, Nelson and Curry and others, first thing is to learn what's actually going on in the blizzard of lies and falsehoods and happy talk that uh, inundate us it's pretty hard to see what's going on sometimes, but that's what matters. Boom. Well, Malcolm, thank you for making time today. We consider you a friend of the pod and can't wait to have you back. Uh, everybody, please go watch the film. Please read Malcolm's book. This is a chapter of our history that is actually not so in the past. It's That's the other thing. I'm like, this is 1971. These are like, this is not the, it's not a hundred years ago. Um, so thank you for coming. Well, it was a great pleasure talking with you, and thank you very much for having me. Well, that's it. Thanks so much for tuning into Pod Save the People this week. Tell your friends to check it out. Make sure to rate it wherever you get your podcast, whether it's Apple Podcasts or somewhere else, and we will see you next week. Pod Save the People is a production of Crooked Media. It's produced by AJ Moultrie and mixed by Charlotte Lands. Executive produced by me, and special thanks to our weekly contributors, Kai Henderson, D.R. Ballinger, and Miles Johnson. Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home.